Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. This is a time in our podcast where I will turn my attention to doing the honors of providing a formal introduction of our guest co-host. You know, I always like to read their bio so that you can understand their accolades, their credentials, their experience, and how they show up to this broad work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, leadership, and business. And so today will be no different. Allow me to introduce my friend, my guest co-host, Dana Brownlee. If you're seeking a DEI academic or expert, then Dana Brownlee may not be for you. Yep, I said that correctly and you heard it correctly. Dana's focus isn't DEI theory. Instead, she blends 20 years of experience as a sought after leadership expert and team building facilitator with three decades of personal experience as a black woman working in and around corporate America to provide an engaging experience that's down to earth and relatable while insightful and profound. Author of The Unwritten Rules of Managing Up, Ms. Brownlee is an acclaimed thought leader around managing difficult personalities, navigating challenges, situations, and speaking truth to power. A Forbes career senior contributor and LinkedIn learning instructor, her business expertise has also been featured by CNN, The Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Working Mother, Entrepreneur, and many, many, many other notable publications. And so podcast community, if you've been with us, you know what to do right now. Find those emojis, find those words of, of gratitude. Let's place them into the chat. Or if you're joining us via LinkedIn, place, you know, those comments to welcome our guest co-host today, none other than my friend Dana Brownlee. And I'm going to stop sharing my screen so that I can make sure that Dana is well spotlighted for all of us. And Dana is so glad to, I'm so glad to see you. I'm so grateful that you said yes to our invitation. And I am honored to have you share with this community today. One of the things that I will ask as you think about how you want to greet this audience is to maybe consider sharing something with us that we would not know about you from reading your bio, which I just did, or even or even from looking at your LinkedIn profile. So welcome, my friend. Happy Friday to you. Happy Juneteenth thank, week, Juneteenth month. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. Your team is amazing. We started talking about doing this months ago. <laughs> I think. Um, I think I think one of your team members has given birth since we started talking about doing. Yes, by the way. So for those of you who know Amora Carter, she did give birth to a baby boy, Joby. And so congratulations, Amora. In case you catch this later, you're watching it now. But Amora was very much responsible for ensuring, Dana, yes. that we were able to get you here today. <laughs> Yes, and she was amazing. And so I'm just really, really grateful to be here. And I think you deserve an award for most committed um, joining during your very personal time in the DR. <laughs> I think we're at mine. We probably would have skipped this week, but um, but it just shows just how really committed you are. And not just committed, we were saying this before we got on, that you we live this work that it, yes. it's not just a job, it's not just a task, that it's something that we feel really passionately about. And so um, I'm just glad and happy to share the space with, with everybody, with all of you today. So thank you for having me. Oh, and I'm supposed to share um, something that you wouldn't know for my LinkedIn profile. Something 
um, you probably wouldn't know that almost every morning I listen to a French language podcast because I have been trying to learn French, I think for half of my life. Uh, and I let it go for a long time. But then when COVID came, you know how we all came up with these little projects. I had all my right. little home projects. And so in addition to those home projects, uh, we'll talk later after George Floyd, I did a lot with anti-racism. But in addition to that, I really wanted to get much more conversational in French. Um, and so I really leaned into that in a serious way. And so I, I try to consume some sort of French, um, I'd say about every, if not every day, every other day. And we just got back from an amazing, amazing trip to Paris. And it was just, it was wonderful. And so um, so I'm, I'm kind of a Francophone. I, I love French culture. I love French language. So um, if you want to maybe casually speak some French, hit me up on, on LinkedIn. I'm always looking for a partner to speak with to Practice. improve my French. <laughs> I love that. And I did not know that about you, my friend. So thank you so much for sharing. I, I love, I love, love, love that. Um, I, so I feel the same way about Spanish. I mean, I, I, I even, and around COVID, as you mentioned your story around COVID is when I decided, you know what, now is the time I have more time for my hands. Right. And I started taking lessons. I mean, it was like two or three times a week and I felt like I was getting good. And then life happened again because the whole world opened back up and yes. And so I had to cease my lessons. And, um, you know, regretfully, I feel like I probably couldn't recall anything that I learned. But I say you have to use it in order to be able to continue to maintain it. And so I understand the sentiments of wanting a partner to practice with every so often. So, right. Um, and yes, you did acknowledge that um, you acknowledge you said commitment. I don't know if it's so much of commitment as it is just pure joy of this hour that I get to spend every Friday in conversation with people that I admire, that I respect, that I have a chance to learn from. And so that is such a treat for me. I tell my team, if even if I am away, if that window of time can be protected, then I am going to want to show up and I get such great gratitude in doing so. So yes, I am fresh sunscreen face, made the suit top if you can't tell. Um, but yeah, glad, glad to be here with this community. Okay, so Dana, I want to jump right in because, you know, one of the things that we like to do at the start of a conversation is bring in some thoughts of what people are holding curiosities around and what's top of mind. And we know that we've been hearing all week long about um, the Titan that was carrying five people um, to go down into the submarine. And I think that the last um, communication that I saw by the news is that the the, the company who actually organized that 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 endeavor um, has, you know, confirmed that they truly do believe those five individuals are are deceased. And so certainly want to um, acknowledge that and want to honor the, the deceased in, in a very respectful way. Um, I'm also keenly aware that there's been some criticism that has hit the wavelengths um, and people have been paying noticeable attention to the fact that that story has garnered lots of support, lots of media coverage, and support even from a global perspective. But while all this was going on, there was also a story of a capsized boat that was carrying hundreds of migrants from Libya to Greece. And many of those individuals also um, died. 
and many are lost right now, and, and people are taking notice of the discrepancies. And so as a journalist yourself, as someone who writes a lot, as someone that cares deeply about equity and inclusion, I just want to get your reactions to that. Right. Well, I I try to be so precise with my language, and I probably should have sent you a correction. I'm no longer a, a Forbes contributor. I loved my time doing that and, and performing. I never considered myself a journalist because I, I really respect that um, that discipline, um, but I certainly was a writer, and I am a writer, um, but not doing that anymore. But I, I think you raised an amazing- for a second, though. Yeah. I want to pause here for a second, Dana, because I so appreciate you bringing that to the conversation that you don't consider yourself a journalist. Let me tell you, I think that if you were to pull all the, the hundreds and thousands of people that follow you, that are in your network, that feel like they know you personally, <laughs> we all would say she is a journalist and she is a darn good journalist. And um, I, can't, I, don't, I can't even recall how many articles in your years of writing for Forbes that you ended up having the number, whatever number that you ended with. Do you even have I that know, it, it's, it's 247. So I did not know her. I don't really say it out of a sense of humility, because I think mm -hmm. I, I did a, a lot of great work there. But I just respect the people who went to journalism school. Sure. And, and I view that and I wrote in a different capacity. So that's just why I yes. try to draw the distinction. So I was a contributor and enjoyed that. And that was an amazing time. But I'm excited to have that time freed up now to, to pursue some other things. But I think that you raise a great, in fact, this is so newsworthy that literally before we came on, I had to ask you to pull up the article because the only thing that I've seen on it thus far was Syra Rao posted about this vast discrepancy because the news cycle has been consumed with this admitted tragedy and it's horrible and, and our condolences certainly go out to those families and any loss of life is is tragic right. so not to diminish that in any way but the disparity between the two is striking and the reason why mm -hmm. I asked you to pull up the story is I literally didn't know about the migrants I didn't know anything about it and so we were on a almost minute by minute 24 7 coverage about this one vessel with the with the five um, individuals, and I think several of them were billionaires. And I say that because I don't think that that's disconnected in in any yes. way from the disparity, and not just the coverage, but also the world response. I mean, yes. <laughs> um, leaders of countries were making public statements about sending, um, you know, portions of their military, sending ships, sending, you know, rescue vehicles. Um, so, so the disparity is just, is just striking. So uh, I applaud Syra for, you know, being on the front lines as she always, as she tends to be oftentimes about letting us know about these things, but literally I, I knew nothing about the other story. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm gonna ask the team, well, it looks like the team is already on it. Someone has placed into the chat that story about um, the missing boat, um, in case you aren't familiar with this, um, with this news, um, but you're right. And, and Dana, this is not, we could point to probably several examples where disparity in terms of media coverage and just the groundswell support around certain populations who have been impacted in very tragic ways. And, um, it tends to continue, um, 
you know, to, to be quite prevalent. And so I think it's worth talking about. One of the things that we often like to address in these conversations, and, you know, I, you, I mentioned it as I was reading your, your bio, speaking truth to power. This is, these are not just hypothetical situations. We're able to bring to the conversation the facts of, do you see the difference in the disparity here? And what I often say is that this is not for debate or for argument. It really is just to help people to interrogate their own thoughts, to be much more observant about what they are seeing, and hopefully draw your own conclusions, and then let those conclusions to allow you to sit with thoughts of, well, what can I do differently within my sphere of influence to try to change these disparities? And so thank you for giving me a moment to, um, to address that. Now, although you do not no longer write for Forbes, you still write and one of the things that I have taken notice of every day when I scroll on um, LinkedIn is your today's installment stories where you share great information that really helps us to become much more knowledgeable about Black history. And knowing that there's so much erasure right now of Black history, I think that what you're doing is so important um, that I try my best every time I see it to either comment or to like it because I want it to gain greater visibility. And so talk to us about what has inspired this and, and specifically what I'm interested in hearing, Dana, is um, the importance of individuals not feeling like they have to be a subject matter expert in the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, or even um, someone who practices directly into the space in order to care enough about educating ourselves, educating others, and valuing the importance of it. So share with us your thoughts on that. Well, there is so much there. Thank you for those questions. I'm actually jotting down some notes because there's so many parts sure. to that. that <laughs> I got tossed a lot at um, you. Yeah, no, it's okay. But to your previous point, just to kind of um, put a bow on that previous conversation about the disparity, yeah. I feel like we just continue to exist in what I call this animal farm equality. For those mm. of you who read Animal Farm when you were in high school or, you know, maybe even college, it's like, yeah, we're all equal, but some of us are just more equal than others. And, yeah. and I think that that's what we're seeing over and over. I mean, I think that's a perfect example of the disparity with the two tragedies going on. Um, but then we see that in broader society and we see it in, in our workplaces. And so for me, when we start to think about well, how yeah, I think most of us will admit there's inequality and there has yeah. been inequality for, for quite a long time. How do we begin to uh, unwind that? How do we begin to create real equity? For me, one of the things that I learned after several years of study is it boils down to racial, you have to have these three components. And I wrote an article about this in Forbes, about the three, for Forbes, the three critical elements to have productive conversations about race in the workplace. And what I, my personal viewpoint is you have to have these three elements. You have to have racial literacy, meaning we have to know what we're talking about. And too often we start having these conversations, like me trying to talk to a physicist about mm -hmm. uh, you know some scientific issue. You're a physicist, I'm not. <laughs> um, and sometimes it's even worse than that. It's like a toddler talking to a physicist. We have to know what we're talking about. Otherwise we're just kind of talking around one right. another. 
that's where the EJI, the Equal Justice Initiatives posts come from. Um, let me just finish off the three before I come back to that. So there's the racial literacy, the racial humility. You yes. can know a lot, but you also have to be teachable. I also mm. have to realize I haven't walked in your shoes or you might have a different life experience or you might have a different perspective. I have to have we've all had that frustration of talking to somebody and you know they've already made up their mind they've already you know decided they're just they don't have any level of humility around the topic particularly sometimes people with the least humility are the ones who know the least yes, so that's yes. even more frustrating <laughs> right so and those two together i think really create the racial stamina which is what we need to be able to to lean into this work but going back to the and so that's why i lean into the literacy piece so much because I think that's just the beginning. It's like, if you don't have that, we can't even begin to have a conversation. You can't understand um, why I'm seeing a disparity, why I'm seeing a, a lack of equality or a lack of equity um, or the difference between equality and equity. Um, so what I committed to do, and I don't even really remember exactly when I did it. It probably was shortly after um, George Floyd and Amy Cooper was, mm -hmm. I was so impressed. Like, let me just tell my little, my, my story about how I made my pivot because it's related mm -hmm. to this. So I'm not in, in the DEI space. I don't come out of the DEI space for 20 years now, after my corporate work, for 20 years, I have had my own training and speaking business. And so I've been training and speaking on very traditional professional development topics like project management, team building, meeting facilitation. I had written a book about managing up and speaking truth to power and all of those sorts of things. And then when George Floyd happened, I literally, I mean, I was gripped like so many other people. I wasn't as shocked. I'm sure a lot of Black people weren't as shocked. But all I could think about was Rodney King and watching mm -hmm. almost the same sort of thing happen. And it was 29 years later. And I'm like, we haven't progressed. We haven't, and I'm not saying we haven't progressed at all, but I'm just saying in that moment, that was kind of what I was feeling. Like, how is something this egregious? And of mm -hmm. course you always think if there wasn't a video, I mean, right. how many George Floyds are there out there? How many Amar right. Arbery's are there out there where they just didn't happen to be a video and yeah. there didn't happen to be this, this public outcry? So in that moment, like a lot of other people, I just, I really started feeling like I've got to do something. You know, mm. I have to stop leaving this to everybody else. And to be mm. honest, I realized I was part of the problem. I was a super educated person. I was out here. I was out here in these workplaces. I lived my own corporate existence where I would be in these meetings and I would have my face on and I would code switch and I would say the right things and do the right things. Then I would get in my car with my girlfriend and be like, girl, let me tell you what happened. These people, you know, we would see things and we'd be frustrated by them. So I realized I was part of the problem because I was leaving the work for the most part to somebody else from a corporate perspective. I didn't view that as my work. I viewed that as, well, there's a DEI council, there's a DEI person, God bless them. Lord knows I couldn't do it because I'd have to have bail money um, if I did it. And that was part of the reason because people would come to me and they would say, would you do DEI? I was like, oh, that's not for 
because <laughs> I've always been very outspoken. Um, mm-hmm. So I, so I said, you know what? I can't, I, we, this is everybody's work. This is absolutely everybody's work. There is no way we are going to unwind 350 years of legal op- racial apartheid in this right. country okay without everybody getting into the game and so i took it very seriously i read about 75 books that's when i wasn't listening to my my french podcast i read about 75 books on anti-racism and because i had to educate myself i right. couldn't go just you know based on my experience i had to edu- you have to respect the field of study the field of scholarship and I had right. to study. I wasn't a history major. So I studied, I learned. And for me, I feel the education, the study, the knowledge is ground zero. Right. I feel that you almost cannot be competent in this space without having done that education. Oh, and so EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative, which Brian Stevenson started, sure, most people know Brian Stevenson from No Mercy and all of his work there, is, a, is an amazing resource. And so they have a daily calendar. And so one of the small things, the tiny, tiny, small things that I committed to was just simply reposting. It's not my work. And that's why I always say, here's today's installment of uh, a history of racial injustice from the Equal Justice Initiative. I'm really trying to encourage people to go and click on, they have something where you can click and so it can come to your inbox. Because Mm. I know everyone is busy. I know everyone's not gonna read 75 books, but it doesn't require that. But it does require that we become knowledgeable. And so I feel like that's just a tiny, tiny, small thing that we can do every day. That is so good. And there are so many people who I'm sure are, are at that, that same place of persuasion that you were at before you really started digging in, which is that this belongs to someone else, you know, and we can even be glad and happy that the work has been given attention to, but we just saw ourselves as separated from it. And I'm not talking about all people, you know, I'm even talking about Black people. There are many of us, just because we have the lived experiences, we think, okay, I need to leave this work to someone else. But as a Black woman yourself, what you said was, I needed to educate myself. I was not grounded in all of the historical significance and reference to be able to speak with that racial literacy as I am trying to be a voice of equity and inclusion and equality. And so I think that that is so noble. It is so important to amplify. I'm even reminded that, you know, earlier this week and and even, you know, there's a couple others that are scheduled between now and the end of June, you know, we've been doing these Juneteenth programming and learning experiences. And one of the things that I'm finding um, is that a lot of Black people are just now coming to understand, and some still may not, but coming to understand what the historical significance of Juneteenth is. And now that's not an indictment on anyone because I was one of those individuals back in like 2021 where it first started Juneteenth was popping up. 
But like you, it was important for me to understand what does that mean exactly, right? And so there's no there's no shaming, there's no guilting, there's no blaming, but there is now responsibility because once you know better, you do better, hopefully. And so let's make sure that to Dana's words and encouragement, we are doing all that we can to position ourselves to be well-equipped and knowledgeable as we are engaging in these conversations because this work belongs to all of us, not just those who carry the title, not just to the activists, but to all of us. And so I, I so appreciate you bringing all of that um, to the conversation. Um, there's much discussion right now, Dana, about whether DEI has worked well for Black employees specifically. I want to get your opinion on that. I know, loaded question, so, right? <laughs> the short answer is, is no. <laughs> I think that we can look at a lot of statistics and see that there's been very little progress because DEI is not new, okay? Yeah, DEI is definitely not, not new. new. Yeah, these institutions were, um, it started in corporations, I think around the late 60s, early 70s, somewhere in there. Yes. Um, so it's not new at all. No. But when you look at the, the outcomes, we still see significant disparities. When we look at the wealth gap, you mentioned, your, I think Annette is coming on to talk about the wealth yep. gap um, is, is extreme. Yep. Um maternal mortality, we look in corporate spaces, look at corporate boards, particularly in the tech space, um, the number, the disparity of uh, Black CEOs. I remember I wrote an article on, um, <laughs> I wrote a, one, one of my articles, I can't remember which one it was, but anyway, I was talking about, I was really focused on the Fortune 500 and the, and the lack of um, Black CEOs in the Fortune 500. I don't know what the number is today. It might be six. I think we're at a high. We're certainly at a high now. Um, for so many years, there were no Black women. If you haven't read Ursula Burns' book, I highly mm -hmm. recommend it. Of course, I can't remember the name of it right now. She was the first Black female CEO, but her book is really, really amazing. Um, and I think and, she was the uh, first my black CEO. sister, Roz Brewer, um, yes. is now a, a, uh, black female CEO. And then my, I'm forgetting God, the name of the other one, but right now That's we great. have two. So mm -hmm. two, two, two is, is, is unfortunately, uh, a high, but for so many years, there were none. I mean, there literally were none. And I remember, um, I think at the time there were four or five Black, they were all men at the time. This was a couple of years ago. And I remember asking my, we were riding home and I remember asking my daughter. So somebody asked Shirley, yeah, Roz Brewer. Yeah, she's mm -hmm. um, CEO now. And um, I think she's CEO of Walgreens. Yep. And um, I was asking my daughter, I said, well, 500 CEOs, you know, the top, uh, the wealthiest 500 companies, the Fortune 500. I said, how many of them, my daughter Ari, I said, how many of them do you think are, are Black, uh, the presidents, the CEOs? And she said, 100? We wish, baby, we wish. And it <laughs> hurt my heart. It hurt my heart. Um, to, to you know to tell her no it, it's four um yeah. or even with the supreme court with katanji brown jackson 
became elevated to a Supreme Court justice. At that point, white men represented 90, for, for the entire history of the Supreme Court, I think the Supreme Court had been in existence for 233 years at that point. I think there had been 115 Supreme Court justices. If you look at that cumulative time period, white men were 94% of Supreme Court justices over that period of time. 94%. What men are 30% of the population. population. Okay. That part. About yes. 60% are white people, about 30% are white men. So 30% of the population, 94% over the entire lifetime of the Supreme Court. So there are tons and tons and tons of statistics. So obviously we know that DEI has not been a panacea for Black yeah. people. Yeah, absolutely. Which is a shame because when DEI first came on the scene, that is the specific demographic that it was designed to, to support and to cater to in terms of really addressing those disparities. And now I am a believer that diversity comes in all different forms, shapes, sizes, right? There's so many different dimensions of diversity and, and the breadth and the reach of diversity deserves um, us as a society certainly leaning into that. But I always say that if we aren't concerned about addressing the needs of the most marginalized, then what are we doing this for? What are we doing this for, right? So um, justice has to be at the center of this work. Humanity has to be at the center of this work. And um, I'm like you, I, 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 I see the disparities that exist today and it's disheartening in so many ways. You know, it's, it's a pretty daily occurrence. It feels like to scroll through LinkedIn and to see so-and-so is the first, you know, black whatever, right? And, and I still want to like it, but then as I go to like it, I'm like, oh, this feels bittersweet because why am I celebrating that just now the first is coming to fruition? And so someone has to be the first. The first has to start someplace, but it's, it's a bittersweet process for me when I'm like in between these tension points. So do I celebrate this or do I... Do I want to sit and kind of reflect on why is that the case and then feel a little uh, regretful that that has not happened sooner? But nonetheless, you did mention Ursula Xerox, and hopefully we're going to try to be able to find her book because I can't think of the name of it um, either. But she was Ursula Burns was the CEO of, of Xerox at one point in time. Um, and so I, I because she made that reference, I do want this audience to be able to have access to what the title of that book was. Um, oh, so and, some, other, and I'll yeah. say the Sonda. Sasanda Duckett Asanda, is the yes. other Black female yep. CEO Asanda. in the Fortune 500 right now. Yep, yep, Sasanda. Yeah, part of the Divine Nine, but not necessarily part of our colors, but that's okay. We, we, we want to see as many as possible, right? <laughs> okay, um, so I want to talk about those who would argue that is counterproductive to discuss the past. You know, we still have a subset of people, a large subset of people that believe, why do we keep revisiting the past? You know, why can't we just look forward? And why are we trying to, um, you know, place guilt and shame on people? Um, let's move forward. What do you say to that, Dana? What's, what's yeah, your so advice? There's, and there's your a lot there. So let's, yeah, so let's start to unpack that. I posted a question on LinkedIn a few weeks ago that got a lot of response. And my question was, for those people who insist that talking about racism just makes it worse, <laughs> have you ever 
seen a complex problem be solved by not discussing it, okay? But when I think about problem solving, it's just basic problem solving. The first step of problem solving is to educate yourself on the problem. Okay? Mm -hmm. And this didn't right. happen by osmosis. This, you know, didn't start yesterday. Yeah. This was intentionally created. We live in a society, we're living in a post-racial apartheid society. Mm -hmm. And when we think about apartheid, we typically think about South Africa and we feel bad we for them. And mm -hmm. I was actually fortunate enough, believe it or not, I wouldn't even plan on bringing that up. I was fortunate enough in my 20s to go to South Africa during apartheid. It was oh. funny because they said we used to, it was illegal for them to watch Roots. And they said we would get a copy of Roots and we would go down to like somebody's house in the basement wow. and we would all crowd around and, and watch it. They were like, we were worried for y'all. But <laughs> but that but that's the truth that we are living in a post-racial apartheid society. And we've only been outside. I was born in 71. The, the Housing Rights Act was 68. We're only about 54 years, uh, 54, 55 years that we've been in a society where uh, discrimination was not legal. Right. So that's very, very new. Yes, There's yes. no way we're going to unwind this if we don't first understand it, okay? And that's not to mention also, we're seeing if you don't understand what's been tried before and what's happened before, you don't have the appropriate context to understand what's continuing to happen now. Voter suppression is a perfect example. Absolutely. So when Shelby County got um, struck down in 2013, states immediately started using a lot of the same tactics mm -hmm. that happened uh, back in the 1900s. And when you don't understand that because you haven't studied it, um, you're not best positioned to address it so that's one part of it but yeah. then I also want to address the other part where you said um you know we don't want to make people feel bad etc <laughs> first of all the history is what it is it is what it is I mean it is what it is you can feel bad not feel bad there are a lot of things that have happened in history there's cancers there's wars there's concentration camps yes. I mean there's all kinds of negative things that have happened in the past I would never be a proponent of well, I don't want to know about it because I don't want to feel bad. I think that's a, mm -hmm. a very immature way to approach life. I mean, it's just my view. The other thing is, I think that people are very presumptuous. Um, this is where the fragility, you know, issue yeah. comes in. The analogy I like to draw is when you walk into a therapist's office, you walk into a therapist's office for therapy, typically... There's tissue, you know, right. on the desk. Typically, there's some tissue there. The tissue isn't there because the therapist wants you to cry. <laughs> That's not their goal. Their goal is not to say, how can I break this person down and make them feel bad? But the therapist understands that if yeah. you are truly to work through some things, 
in order to better yourself, in order to be healthier from a mental health perspective, that oftentimes that doesn't just involve, but sometimes requires some discomfort, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that is a huge difference in perspective. It's not that the person is trying to make you cry because they want you to feel bad, but it's acknowledging we're going to talk through some things in a very open and honest and candid way. And you might have some feelings and, and emotions related to that. And that discomfort is part of the process. And then the last thing I'll say really quickly is I think that there's, when we talk about guilt and shame, I think there's a d- big difference between individual guilt and individual shame versus collective guilt and shame. I don't think there's anybody alive today who owned other people. I don't think there's anybody alive today um, who participated in in chattel slavery. So when we talk about those things, or even when we talk about um, Jim Crow and the the apartheid system in the 60s, 50s, you know, before then, um, that's not an indictment of any one individual. But I all, I think that we should feel I'm an American. I do feel a sense of collective guilt, um, collective hurt, um, collective discomfort mm-hmm. with our very well-documented history of oppression, discrimination, and racial apartheid. So I would just invite yeah. people because sometimes we over-personalize. We make everything about us. And I see that it happens on LinkedIn all the time. I could post something and somebody jumps into the comments with something about them. Everything is not about you, okay? So I would invite people to depersonalize and to not look at everything through the lens of yourself or how uh, it might make you feel about yourself personally and consider that it probably isn't a personal indictment. It isn't even a personal reflection or an individual reflection, but it might be talking about the collective and that's very different. It is very different. And this this is so rich, Dana. I'm not sure if you're paying attention to the chat, but lots of good commentary is coming up and, and your words are resonating with folks. I just want to lean in a bit um, with, with a couple reflection points. Um, you know, it goes back to where we started. You mentioned that there is discomfort is part of the process. And I think that when people can settle into the fact that discomfort may show up, it can be managed and navigated with greater ease not ease, but just greater ease, right? We can minimize some of that complexity if we follow the prescription that you've laid out for us, right? You talked about we need to have racial literacy, we need to have racial humility, we need to have racial stamina. So if some people are listening to this and they're saying, okay, yeah, I get it, but that just doesn't make me feel good. So I'm just gonna still sit on the the sidelines and be on the fence. Well, we're giving you now ways to help navigate that discomfort, at least to keep you from being on the fence, but get engaged. That's the first thing. The next thing is that accountability does not mean shame. And I think that sometimes we assign shame to accountability. And that's not always the case. I think that when people hear the the significance of of history and how it still shows forth in many different ways, it may not look the same, but it still shows forth, then it makes them feel like um, 
I'm going to be held accountable for it, and I don't want to be held accountable for it. But it's as you said, I think that we each have to think about what are some accountability mechanisms at the personal level, but then also what is the collective accountability and shared you know, guilt and, and desire to want to change the outcome for the better. And then the last thing is, Whenever I get presented with an argument of that's in the past, you know, why, why do we keep talking about race um, is if you want to then change that and minimize the conversation of race, then help us change things. Right. Because <laughs> if it's changed and the outcomes look different, we probably wouldn't be having these conversations left and right. But it's still relevant because it still shows up. So we still have the conversations. Right. So anyway, I want to just bring that to the conversation, and I want to let this audience know that we are going to be shifting. We're getting close to our final 10 minutes remaining, and I always, always, always like to make sure that I give each of you an opportunity to present your questions, your curiosities, your contributions to the conversation, and you can do so by using the raise hand feature, and I will allow you to unmute yourself and share. I'll even spotlight you if your camera's on. Because if your camera's on, that lets me know that you're willing to be added to the spotlight. Or if you have a question and you're joining us LinkedIn Live, then place it into the comments. My team is watching that and we'll bring it over here and we'll try to answer as many as possible. But I want to give you a chance to think on what your questions or comments may be. So I'm going to go to another question for you, Dana. And this is about the topic of calling in and calling out. We've heard that language used a good bit kind of in this body of work by many different practitioners and just champions. And um, you have a pretty strong perspective about the debate that's happening about whether or not it is appropriate to call someone in versus call someone out. And so I just want you to socialize around what comes up for you when you hear that language and, and why, and why is that your position on it? Yeah, certainly we could have a whole hour long conversation on this. Um, I, I posted about this on LinkedIn recently as well, and there was a lot of feedback. And um, again, this is where history is so important. I think if you look at history, you won't see a history of too much progress or people being held too accountable. I think you'll see the exact opposite. I think slavery, chattel slavery was 246 years. That is a long time. Long time. Okay. That we uh, we didn't remain, our ancestors didn't remain enslaved for 246 years because they weren't patient enough, because they didn't ask nicely enough. Okay. The uh, Jim Crow South, uh, the racial apartheid years, almost 100 years. Again, we needed more resistance. We needed more speaking up. We needed more speaking out. The problem is this. People try to pretend or people um, act as if the two are mutually exclusive when they're mm -hmm. not mutually exclusive. They're not. I'm a huge proponent of tailoring your response to the situation. There are times when I feel like calling in might be the most appropriate thing to do. And that's what I'll usually do in those cases. There are times when I feel like calling in probably is not going to be effective and calling or it might, it might not even be possible. I've had, I remember one time on a calendar, there was a calendar I was using and it still had Columbus day on there. And I was offended mm -hmm. by that. And I didn't like mm -hmm. the fact that I had spent my money with this company. So <laughs> I wanted to talk to them. I wanted to, I had to call them out. 
I don't work for the company. There's no way to call them in. So I posted about it on LinkedIn. I uh, tagged uh, executives at the company. So I didn't have the opportunity. So I only had yeah. the opportunity to, to, to call out. But the thing that I think is so important to say here, and particularly when we're in these corporate spaces, is most people don't understand that. Um, let me just give you an analogy. When I call customer service, we've all had a customer service problem or not. When mm -hmm. I call up customer service, I have a problem. I'm trying to get my problem fixed. I don't call them up asking to speak to the president, asking to get on the board agenda. I don't start rolling around on the floor, foaming at the mat. I, you know, I don't start there. Yeah. I start very politely hoping and assuming that that rep who answered the phone will be able to address my concern. So I would say in as many cases as I can, I typically will start by calling people in. Mm -hmm. But saying the quiet part out loud, calling in generally doesn't work. So that's what mm -hmm. I posted on LinkedIn the other mm -hmm. day. My question for all the calling in evangelists is what do you do when calling in is no is not effective? Yeah, yeah. And, and many people say you call out. I get crickets, crickets. Yeah. Because guess yeah. what they do? What my experience has been they do nothing. You and do nothing. that yeah. for me is what is not acceptable. Now, again, caveat. I am all about being strategic. I'm all about picking your battles. I'm not saying every single little thing deserves a level 10 response. I think it's up to us as, as mature professionals to decide who, when, where, how much, all that good stuff, okay? So I just wanna put that out there. But my point is, part of the reason why we've made so little progress is we use this meek um, approach, the meek, safe, uh, not taking any risks, more focused on comfort than progress sort of approach. And so when nothing happens, when we get gaslighting, when we get pushback, when we get ignored, the conversation ceases. And so I'm always going back to uh, MLK letter from a Birmingham jail when he talks about the frustration is with the, the white moderate who's more devoted to order than yeah. justice. Yeah. And so in today's parlance, what I would say is too many of us are more devoted to comfort than progress. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm all for calling in when it works. I'm mm -hmm. all for calling out when it works. Yes. I don't see them as mutually exclusive, but my focus is more so on the progress than it is on the level of comfort. Yeah. So that's where so well I, I stand on that debate. No, I, I appreciate you giving us some insight into that. And Charlene, I see that your hand is raised. So I'm going to come to you. If you want to get your camera on, I will spotlight you. Um, but I want to just say a quick thing um, related to the, the last question about calling in, calling out. I think it's also important to think about what is the ultimate goal here without really understanding that. I think that's where we falter on which is appropriate, call in, call out, you know, right? So let's make sure we're clear on what is our intent and the really the ultimate goal we're after in that situation. I think also just assessing, is this isolated or is this a pattern? Is this person 
or is this kind of the behavior? Because I think that that also can determine how in which we either call in or call out, right? And then the last thing too is who's witness to this? You know, the example that you gave, yes, you can't just go and, and call up the, the people that are, that are the CEO or the owners of the calendar company, right? But, you know, if you're in a group of an setting where there are other people who are witness to something that are, that is happening very egregious and harmful, then to me, I feel like that's when it becomes a greater sense of responsibility to bring attention to it in the presence of others. Because no one knows what conversations you're having behind closed doors. And then we then assume that someone is condoning that. And so there's a lot of circumstances that makes this um, situational in terms of how in which people would respond. But I, I certainly appreciate you bringing that to the, the conversation because there's been a lots of debate about the calling in and calling out. Okay, Charlene, thanks so much for joining us. Do you want to unmute yourself and share your question or your, your comments? All right, so first of all, ladies, I wanna say thank you so much for hosting this space. I hate I've missing out and I've gathered so much from you, Dana, that you have no idea. So this is the thing, you uh -huh. actually make, you made the, you made the comment in regards to people tagging. So let me let me speak to this, and you guys tell me if I'm losing my mind because the company I used to work for is making me feel like I'm losing my mind. So um, we're now going through what you call negotiations, and they're like, you can't talk about this, you can't talk about that. And I'm like, you guys are de defeating the whole purpose. What I'm saying, we need transparency for. So my question is, despite the fact that they're saying I can't speak on these things. These are things that other people need to be, they need to know about. They need to understand the culture that they're walking into. And so oftentimes we're not protected. So when I would recruit people, bring people in, I would always be honest. There are some places here that we've got some trouble, uh, particularly in technology. There's not any of us in senior roles and senior positions. And I like to say that part of my voice for the past two years of being there may have had some say because they started creeping them in all of a sudden just promoting people. But my thing is, I don't want to stop speaking out and they're saying that if i keep tagging or if i keep you're not going to get anything i'm like i'm not even trying to get anything family i'm trying to get you guys to fix my file because you're lying on me for over seven years i saved you guys millions of money i met led several teams and now you're saying oh yeah you got that award last year but that don't mean anything we don't need you anymore so my question is i guess in a, in a roundabout way is Am I wrong to continue to tag to speak? Because you just said, and I don't know. I think that's the only way for me to get it because they told me we had a relationship. When I tell you I met with the CIO every other every other month because I chair the AERG, it was part of the relationship. Now that I'm not there, I'm reaching out saying, hey guys, do you know what happened in technology? No one wants to listen. But before mm -hmm. when I was there, they were sitting, what do we need to do, Cheryl? What, 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 what do we need to do to make it better? So I feel like I'm in a space where I'm yelling and screaming. No one's listening. I do post on LinkedIn and share what the situation is so there can be some awareness. But I don't think I'm really getting anywhere with it. I think I'm bumping my head up against the wall. Right, right. Thank you. Thank you for that. I think you speak for so many people. And, and thank you, uh, Cheryl, for the, the, the kind words. I really appreciate that. And I know we're almost out of time. Obviously, I don't know all the details and I don't know your exact situation. So let me just speak fairly broadly that I hear some version of that so many times. And I hear a lot of people who say, well, I don't want to speak up because they might get rid of me or there might be negative consequences, et cetera. And I think that that's um, uh, 
completely reasonable. I completely, completely understand this. And I think everyone's got to make their own choices based on their own situation. But I will say this, for me, living within my value system is so important to me um, that for me, I think there's a blessing in, like, if you're in a recruiting sort of situation, to me, it's imperative that you're honest. I mean, I, I think that's a bit of a no-brainer. You know, I would want an recruiter to be honest with me. I think recruiters should be honest. If I'm honest and I'm living within my value system and I'm sharing openly and honestly, um, and then that's problematic or there are negative consequences as a result of my living within my value system, I will just say that is very helpful information for me to have about where I want to continue to invest my energy, okay? Because we all have choices. And for me, I mean, I know it's a, um, you know, it it might feel like a, a frightening sort of thing, but I just don't even view it that way because I feel like life is precious, time is precious, why do I want to put myself in a situation where I can't be authentic? And I know there's, you know, levels of authenticity. I'm not saying, you know, 100% necessarily, but where I can't live my value. So for me personally, there are clients I've walked away from. I'm, I'm quick to walk away from somebody just because it's not a space where I feel I can do the type of work that I want to do. So I'll just leave it there. And 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 um, Nika, your thoughts? Yeah. No, I I, I love what you shared, and I'll, I'll just quickly add on that. Um, yeah, I think that it starts with being really deeply rooted and grounded in your values, and you know what emotional capacity you have to endure whatever types of steps and conversations and interactions. Um, and so you have to make that call for yourself, as Dana mentioned. I also feel compelled to share, because you mentioned negotiations. I don't know if these negotiations are direct between the two entities or if there's now legal in, in, involved. And so I do think that the legal protections and and um, you know whatever the legalities are around where you are currently within those those the, the negotiation period, um, it, does, it does have merit. And so just be mindful that you're, you're seeking counsel where appropriate and that you're following the experts' um, advice in that regard. Um, and so wishing you best um, in your situation. Thank you for being a part of our community today. And thank you for sharing your question. Okay, so we are out of time. And this conversation could have gone on for at least another hour, Dana. I do want to give you the final 60 seconds um, to just close this out in whatever way that feels appropriate. If there's something that you're working on right now that is really near and dear to you or something that's coming up on the horizon, I want to give you a chance to share that with this community as we close out. Well, I just want to thank you and your team. You all have been amazing. Thank you to everyone who showed up. I do have some announcements coming, but they're not ready yet. So, but coming soon. But I think I'm just going to close out with one of my favorite quotes. Um, Margaret Mead, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. So I just wanted to encourage all of us to take our power. We can't wait for anyone else to save us. We can't wait for the leaders to save us or Congress or the Senate or or anybody. We have to take that power each and every day by speaking up and speaking out and living our values. So thank you all for, for having me. 
Thank you so much. We're going to place your LinkedIn into the chat. We hope that you all will. If you're not already following Dana, definitely follow her. She has like five or six LinkedIn learning courses with more coming out soon. Lots of great things. Sounds like it's on the horizon. And so keep your ears and eyes plugged. Thank you so much, Dana. Have a great weekend, everyone. <laughs>